Um, good evening, everybody. How do I lower this? I feel like a hobbit. There we go. There we go. All righty. We'll see if my other team wins tonight. I'm wearing Ferrari t-shirt. Uh, Nine o'clock. Come on. Let's go. Um, but more importantly, more importantly, everybody, um, the book of James. Uh, welcome if you are new here or you're visiting. Uh, we spend the bulk of our year often going through one big book of the Bible. Today, um, we are nearly done with the book of James. It's been our book for the year. We've got one more week. Um, it's a book of five chapters, a letter written by Jesus' half-brother to a bunch of Christians in the first century. There were, a lot of them were Jewish Christians. And um, let me just put up here the passage, and we're not going to read it right now, but I just want to ask you, what do you think today's passage might be about? Um, there's uh, the first bit of it, and then you can skip to the next slide. You'll see the next bit of it. Okay. Anybody? Prayer. Prayer. Come on, guys, I gave it to you. I gave you a simple answer. Prayer. I highlighted for you the answer. Um, it is um, honestly quite a simple Bible study tip, which is um, if you want to try to figure out what the author is trying to get at his argument in a particular passage, um, there's plenty of tools you can use. One of them is to just look for repeated words. Often that's a sign of his letter he's kind of get across. And today it is prayer. James has nearly finished his letter. He's kind of leaving some final words um, with, with, with God's people. And I don't know about anybody else, but uh, I know personally that I probably reckon I think of three people in my life who I think and they probably agree that, you know, they're nailing their prayer life. Like if you just think like, man, like am I passing the score on my prayer life? Yes. For the majority of us, uh, if we're honest, well, at least it's me, um, I think we've got miles to go in terms of where we could be in terms of reaching out to God, praying to God um, for whatever it might be. And so tonight's going to be great for us um, because I think it's going to be really helpful, inspiring, um, and, and push us forward in this area if we, if we take James at his word and, you know, as he said in the letter so far, be doers of the word and not just hearers. Um, and let me just say that James is writing to Christians, and so the, the stuff that he's pushing towards us this evening are aimed at Christians. He's expecting that it's Christians who are going to be saying yes to these things. Um, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a Christ follower, you are exploring Jesus, or you know, what it, wherever you might find yourself, um, consider this evening as an opportunity to consider what you could be missing out on. That's how I'm going to put it. Um, I want you to hear from James and God through James, uh, God's invitation for you. How, as you know, Steph's been saying, God is open-armed, waiting for people to come to Him for, uh, for life and forgiveness and to be put back into um, His desires and His calling on your life. And so uh, that's the invitation for you. But we're just going to jump in. Um, the big idea for tonight is that James envisions us as a people of prayer. We're a people of prayer. And we're going to look at uh, just three things from this text. So the first one, the middle one's kind of the longest one. Um, but here's the first one is that we're a people who pray in good times and bad times, who pray in good times and bad. So verse 13, James kicks off and he says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And I think singing is just another form of prayer. Prayer is the whole, you know, big umbrella of just talking to God. Singing is one of the ways that we do that. So let's, um, as, cynical, as a cynical generation, let's start with the bad first. Let's go there. Um, 
What does James say about the bad times? Is anyone among you, among you suffering? Let him pray. What I want us to notice, first of all, is James doesn't say, hey, pray for your circumstances to change. He doesn't actually get super specific. I don't think that's a wrong prayer at all because James is going to get there just now. But it's not what he says. He uses the broadest possible terms here. Pray, pray. And think back in light of everything that James has taught us so far. Going through trials, going through suffering. These are the things that James has been talking about his whole letter. He's got these sorts of things in mind. Listen up. We're to be a people who have joy in the midst of trials. To have steadfastness in our faith as we wait for relief coming from the Lord at his return. People of faith and patience like the prophets were, like Job was in the Old Testament. A people who are finding completeness in our faith through perseverance. These are all just, these are just Job, um, James's words. A people who are looking for wisdom for how to live and be single-minded with regards to the kingdom when the pressure is on, when the heat is on. People who resist the temptation of Satan and sin and the lies that we're tempted to believe, I think particularly in the bad times. That's when we're all most vulnerable, right? One theologian, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said something like, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain and suffering is sometimes God's megaphone to get the attention of a sleeping world sometimes. And so I want to just say here, if you're not a Christian, and maybe there's been pain in your life recently, maybe you're going through some form of suffering right now, I don't know what that looks like. Could God be trying to get your attention? Could he be using this circumstance to arrest your attention and say, hey, I'm here. I want you to focus on what really matters. I want you to consider the things about me that you might not have considered before and even consider the things about yourself that he would say about you. Is God shouting to you, perhaps? And I want us to hear this loudly, both those of us who are exploring, but also those of us who are Christians, because we live in an age that is absolutely averse to any kind of discomfort, whether that's internal or external, okay? And it affects our view of God, and therefore it affects our ability, I think, to be people of perseverance and steadfastness and of holy grit, that I like to say, because what happens is we assume that God is not with us when we're suffering, that if we're suffering, God is now distant, or God doesn't care, or God's not with us or for us. And it can be, you know, circumstances on the outside, and it can be specific feelings on the inside that, that, that cause us to think this and feel this. And we live in a world that's doing everything to con us in this respect, okay? We live in a world that, to use this one metaphor, um, is, is pushing us to prepare the road for the child rather than preparing the child to face the road. Does that make sense? We live in a generation where we are, we're trying, we're clutching at straws to figure out and, and get control of all the circumstances so we don't have to deal with life, rather than helping us to be people who are able to withstand the real realities of life because we're unable to actually control them, and they're coming at us whether we like it or not. Jesus promised us these things. Here's a big point. God's will can be accomplished through suffering. And if you don't believe that, I don't think you believe a whole bunch of the Bible because God's been achieving His will through suffering throughout the pages of the Scriptures. And if you don't believe that point, I don't think you believe the gospel, the very heart of the Bible, because it's through God's plan from before time for the suffering of Jesus that He's made salvation available for the whole world. God uses suffering. Suffering doesn't have to be wasted in the economy of God. 
even the messengers of God's message in some ways are, are called and assumed to be those who, who suffer as they bring the message of the gospel to the world around us. I think that's exactly what Paul says when he says, we're meant to be people who are filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. It's a very controversial verse. Jeez, what is lacking in what Jesus did on the cross? The answer is nothing, but we are meant to be displaying the message of Christ's suffering in the way that we suffer. So people think, geez, this message is real. Could you really be embodying the message of a suffering servant? And you're doing it in the way that you suffer, when we suffer well. If this isn't true, if none of this is true, why on earth do we have so many psalms of lament? They're there for us to recognize people go through these things. 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, people going through deep, deep grief. So in our bad times, we're meant to be people of prayer. We can pray for circumstances to be relieved, but my goodness, in our generation, that is our default. And if God doesn't deliver us, God must be against us. And man, I was amazed this week, sorry to bring up Albury two weeks in a row, but um, uh, I messaged to check in on Albury earlier this week, Mission I, and she immediately replied saying, I'm not good, come pray for me like today. And so we were, Mission I were like, okay. So we went and prayed, went over to Steph's house. We were all kind of lying on the bed with Albury in bed um, and we were all praying for her. And then Albury started praying. And I listened closely and Albury did not pray for her circumstances to be relieved once in that prayer. No doubt, I'm sure she's prayed that many times before. But all that came out of her mouth was God, I thank you that you are good and that you are with me and you are for me and I know that you are close and that you love me and I have a hope and a future. She just prayed these kinds of prayers and she just modeled it in front of me and it was amazing. It was amazing to behold. We need to be people who pray in the bad times and something I shared uh, in prayer meeting today, it's a a picture that uh, has just been floating around my head recently. We've been going through the Old Testament, Mission I, um, slowly but surely, and somewhere, I don't know if it was a commentary or what, reminded me of something that I had seen before but never really thought about, the fact that in the tabernacle, okay, the, the portable temple that the, the people of Israel had when they were wandering around the desert, um, there was the candle in the tabernacle that burnt consistently. It was always on. The, the light was always on, and I never really, I never really thought about that before. Um, and just something that this commentator said got me thinking about the fact that you would have known that the light would have been shining out the bottom of the tent, or you, you would have known that the light was always on in the tabernacle. Imagine being an Israelite in the desert. You've been there for 30 years. You're like, oh my gosh, like I thought I was going to be in the promised land. I'm not going to get there. And you've got a whole bunch of other issues on your head, and you can't sleep at night. And you leave your tent one night, and you're wandering around. There's hundreds of thousands of people camped, and you, you wander towards the middle of the Israelite camp where the tabernacle was. And you would have looked, and you would have seen some light emanating out of the tent of meeting. And I wonder if this would have gone through your head, much like today where we walk around and you might see someone's light on at night, you typically think, hmm, someone's home, someone's home. And an ancient Israelite would have been able to look at that tabernacle and say, God's home, God's here, God's with us. Night and day, God is in our midst, he's in our presence, he's with us in the good times and the desert times. And I just love that image as something just to hold on to and something tangible. And so we pray to God in the bad times, but maybe we need to hear this one even more than that, to be a people who pray to God and sing to God in the good times. Because I want to put to you that I think one of the worst things that can happen to a Christian is when we allow the good things from God and the blessings that we've received from God in the good times to actually dull us to Him, the one who's given us those things. 
And that happens, right? That happens so much. We do this all the time. We, we turn back to worshiping created things and reveling in them and marveling in them and devoting our minds and our emotions to them to the neglect of the good God who gave them to us in the first place as a means of joy. James had said earlier in, in chapter 1, I think it was, every good gift comes down from heaven from the Father of lights. Our Father is a, in heaven. He's a good God. He's, he's the Father of all good things, and He gives good gifts to His children. But man, how easy it is for us to forget the good times and only, only ever cry out to Him when, when the stuff's hit the fan, right? That's the time when it's like, okay, now I need God. Oh, God, I'm so sorry that I haven't chatted to you in the last six months or year. Please come through for me now. I think we know that. We know that experience. It's real. But just think of it, man. Is that the expression of a loving relationship with the parent? I don't think so. Man, I, I, like, it would suck if, 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 if Harrison only ever came to me when he, when he was desperately in trouble and just ignored me for the rest of his life. Now, maybe he will. I'm not there yet. But I hope he doesn't. I hope he doesn't. I wouldn't like to be treated like that. Now, we're meant to be people who pray and specifically sing to God in the good times. We sing praises to Him. We thank Him for who He is, the things that are absolutely unchangeable about Him, His, His characteristics, and who we are in Him, who He's made us to be in Christ. The fact that we have been forgiven and declared not guilty and been adopted. The fact that He's now our Father. We can thank Him for these things. We can thank Him that we have every spiritual blessing because we are in Jesus by faith. Everything that is his is now ours. He's our older brother who gets the inheritance and shares it with all the rest of the siblings. We have a hope and a future in him. And we can thank him for every material blessing that we have. You might have heard me say this before. I often try to, in a, in a prayer time, thank God for the last 24 hours and just think of everything that I could actually possibly thank him for, whether it was sleep, whether it was for food, whatever it might be. We need to be people who, to quote, well, not to quote, but to, to channel Winston Churchill here, and this might be completely lost on most of you. Praise him in your room. Praise him on the prom. Praise him on the beaches. That's the one that you should get. Praise him on the mountains. We should be praising God everywhere. And singing, in particular, is a gift that actually unlocks our emotions. Our emotions are good. God gave us emotions we're not Stoics who are kind of trying to detach ourselves from the world. God gave us these things. We're in relationship. He's intended things to bring us joy and pleasure. We're embodied people who are made in the image of God. And so that's why the Bible often commands us to clap and raise our hands in worship and dance for joy. It's not some weird charismatic sect that like, you know, pulled these things from somewhere else. They're in the Bible. They're part of how we are meant to be worshiping. And so I think as a congregation, I'm just going to remind us again, I think we can turn the, the, the dial up on this stuff. We can be people. We've got something to sing about. God is good. God is with us. God has died for us. God's got a hope in the future for us. We can, we can shout a bit. It's okay. In fact, it's really good. It's really, really, really good. Let me end this point on this. I think that... Um, part of the ability to remain steadfast and faithful in the times of hardship and in the time of suffering is to have a heart prepared in the season of triumph, right? I think, I think that is the, the, uh, the, the ability to, to, to have that here is because you've laid the foundations here. And then this popped up on Facebook or something, a quote from Jen Wilson, which just nailed it for me. She says, the spiritual disciplines nurture steadfastness. What we repeat in times of ease 
we will recall in times of hardship. Now, if you haven't prepared for your time of suffering, I'm not saying it's too late, tough luck, good luck to you. But, man, we should be people who prepare for suffering when we're not suffering, so that when it comes, we're ready and we've got a reservoir to draw on. So that's the first point. We're people of prayer and we're people who pray in the good times and the bad times because God's with us and He's good in all of those seasons. Here's the next one. We pray for healing. And this is the one we'll camp out on a bit because it could be a bit controversial and we want to unpack it a little bit. So verse 14 to 16. Is anyone among you sick? He carries on. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Aha, aha, aha. Anointing him with oil. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, what church is this? What have I walked into here? Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if the sick person has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What's up, little buddy? So, I want to put to you um, two what I think are incorrect ways of approaching this text. And I think depending on your church background and your culture and your tradition, you might be pulled in, in either, either direction. And it's not to say that we don't have a, a church background and a tradition, but anyways, let's see, let's see here. So here's, here's two groups. Group number one, and this doesn't mean if, if you might believe one or two of these things, you believe everything, but just go with me here. Group one might come to this topic of healing and say things like this. Christians should never get sick. It's in a sense unacceptable for Christians to be sick. And God heals all the time. Well, God should heal all the time. That should be our expectation. And if anyone is sick and doesn't get healed, it's because they don't have enough faith. And they're lacking in faith that God wants to heal them or can heal them. And we should be people who actually just name it and claim it, okay, when it comes to healing. We should even probably say things like, I am healed, before you've even got healed. Even if you're not healed, just say it. And that might sound strange, but I think, I think that is a tradition that some of us might come from. And the claim here, it's, which is, which is, which is a, a true claim, is that the kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of God is here. The power of God is here. The cross has purchased stuff that we can experience now. And the critique that we would offer is this view has no room for God's will to work in suffering, which is what we've already chatted about, right? It, it, it doesn't kind of allow for that. It's, I would say it seems both Paul and a bunch of his colleagues were sick for periods of time in the New Testament, and Paul has room for that theologically. It doesn't freak him out. Thirdly, I think claiming things that aren't true is lying, right? I think, I think that is a, a pretty obvious statement, but it is. It's the opposite of the honesty and the truthfulness that James was speaking about last week. And I think it's a really bad witness to those who are exploring faith when we say things that have happened and they haven't happened. And I think telling people that they're not healed because of their own lack of faith, I think can be really cruel. When someone is already down because they're sick, and now we blame them further for their lack of faith for not getting well. I just don't think that's cool. And I want to say the, the sick person's faith is not the only factor. It's not the only factor. So that's the first group. That you might come from that background. You might be super persuaded of that stuff. I don't know. Group number two is kind of on the opposite side of, of, of the donkey. You could fall off the donkey this way. You can fall off the donkey this way. Here's group two. Um, God is about souls, not bodies, at least in some shape or form. 
And this passage is, is not about physical healing at all. It's about spiritual sickness. It's about um, suffering and being relieved and healed from that. And it even talks about confessing sin. And that's kind of the proof text there. And the claim on this would be, again, another true claim. Hey, the kingdom of God is not yet. Jesus hasn't come back. He hasn't restored the cosmos. We still live in a world of Satan, sin, and death. And we'll kind of critique this view as we, as we unpack the rest of the text now. But in response to both groups, remember that the truth of the New Testament is that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is, is not yet here. We live in an already not yet dynamic where the future kingdom age of perfection has broken in since the time of Christ's first coming, but is only going to be completely here at the time of Christ's second coming. The kingdom is spreading, but it's not fully here. Heaven is invading earth, but it's not fully down here just yet. The future kingdom age is arriving, but it's arriving in pockets because we're not fully there yet. It's only happening on the other side of judgment day. And so when we come to healing, before we even think about questions of, is it God's will to heal or not or whatever, I think just this, this paradigm of the already not yet world that we live in explains a whole bunch about why sometimes we see healing and sometimes we don't. Because the kingdom is here and we can expect it, but it's not fully here, and so sometimes it's not always going to be here. It makes sense. It makes sense to me anyway. But let's just walk through these verses here bit by bit and just comment as we go. So James says, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick, okay? Are there any Christians in this church community who are sick? I'm, I'm actually also saying that now. Is anyone here sick? Um, and although the words sick and healed here could, could be taken as human weakness, frailty, spiritual suffering, the need for spiritual restoration, you have to go with the minority of uses of that the vast majority of the way these words are used in the New Testament, in other, other um, uh, first century writings, are around physical sickness and physical healing. Especially the Gospels, of which James is probably one of the closest linked letters to the Gospels. James is quoting from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and so much all the time. So, if any of you are here who is a Christian, is sick, now and in the future, listen up, listen up. Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Once again, the language of raised up in the Gospels is consistently paralyzed people standing, dead people coming back to life. It's used for sick, physical sickness and physical healing. And the New Testament and the early church, we see it again and again. They were a church that prayed for sick people. William Barclay, he's a, he's a scholar. Here's just a tiny quote from him, looking at some of the church fathers. Irenaeus, writing in the late second century, tells us that the sick were still healed by having hands laid on them. Tertullian, another church father, writing midway through the third century, says no less a person than Roman Emperor Alexander Severus was healed by anointing at the hands of Christian Torpation. Clement, um, I don't know if there's two Clements, because I've got a Clement of Rome here, and there's a Clement of Alexandria later. I'm not sure if they're, they're different guys or the same guy. But this Clement, in his, in his um, first epistle to the church in Rome, just at the end of the first century, he said, just a little catchphrase kind of, he said, heal the sick, raise up the weak, cheer the faint-hearted. You go all the way to the fifth century, and Augustine, the, 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 the North African bishop, there talks about, and just like the New Testament, we are still seeing healings and miracles today. So, that's our view. That's what we believe. 
Now, let me just comment a little bit. We can go to the next slide for the verse, back to the verse. Um, James's methodology here, calling the elders, anointing with oil, is not the only way healing can happen. This, the, the idea of this passage is not to present the limited way that healing happens. We know that because um, God can use anyone to heal. Uh, we know that there are gifts of healing, which this is not talking about, but there are some people who have been given a supernatural endowment to be able to um, trust and see prayers answered for healing. But um, let's see what James does say here today about healing. But just remember, Jesus was spitting on people's eyes and making mud cakes and all sorts of ways that he was healing people. And if you want to try that, you can. Um, we won't. Tonight, we're just going to go with the oil, a lot more conservative. Um, but check out here. It's the sick person that takes the initiative here. The sick person calls the elders over to their house, presumably. Um, and I've got a few comments on this. The first is, Strange point, but I think this is one of the reasons we need to be, as Christians, involved in local churches, involved in local communities. Because I want to ask, who are the elders that you are going to call when you're sick? <laughs> elders do not have jurisdiction over the entire church of God. For that, I'm very grateful. <laughs> I'm not responsible for the Christians over there and over there and in Australia. I'm not, I'm not responsible for any of them. I'm responsible for my flock. If an elder and the elders don't have a flock, they're not elders. But are you part of this flock, or are you part of a flock? Do you have elders that you can call? Have you said yes to elders, and saying yes to commitment to their authority? Just a sidebar. Carrying on. Elders are plural, okay? We don't see in the New Testament these sort of lone pastors leading churches. They're a team of shepherd elders, and they go to the person's house, and the person here is probably super sick. Most commentators say this person is really sick because they themselves can't go to the elders. They call the elders to come to them. And that's not to say, again, that we can't pray for your two-day cold. Um, we totally can, and we can trust God. But I think what James has in mind here is someone who is seriously ill. And they anoint the person with oil. What's up with that? Well, a few things. Anointing is, is not magical. Um, and the majority of commentators don't think this is medicinal, as if it's like some sort of healing ointment that they apply. If you think about it, why would you ask the elders to come and do medicine on you? Get the doctors to do that, okay? Don't ask Paul, ask Luke, who was the physician, to come and do, come and do medicine on you. No, the elders are coming to do prayer, and this is something to do with prayer and the Holy Spirit. And healing happens without oil. Again, so oil is not the point here regardless of what your view of, of it is. But I want to put you that the practice of anointing people with oil, the majority way it's used throughout the scriptures, is for the setting apart of someone before God, for God to work in them and work through them. So it's hap it happens when they, you know, anoint kings and prophets and elders. And here it is anointing someone who is sick. It's putting a sick person before God and saying, God, we're putting this person before you. Won't you come and work? It's a, very, it's a very physical act that has, in a sense, symbolic overtones. And the elders come and they pray in the name of Jesus. I want to say this loud and clear. We affirm that healing comes through his name and his power. Jesus is the name above all names. And Jesus purchased this again might be controversial, purchased physical healing at the cross. He purchased physical healing at the cross. There is healing in the atonement of Jesus. Why? One of the ways I know this, not just because I think Isaiah prophesies that, but because 
at the cross, Jesus purchased our resurrection. He purchased our resurrection. So think of it like this. Every single Christ follower is guaranteed to physically rise from the dead one day, never to die again. Physical healing is a foretaste of that age. So praying for healing, unlike many other things that we might ask for or pray for, is a prayer that's actually always guaranteed to be answered in the affirmative. The question is just when. Is God going to answer yes then, on that day, or is he perhaps going to break in and do it now? Either way, God will always answer yes to prayers for healing. It's fascinating if you think about it. Let me say this, though. Healing in this age is not permanent. I just want to remind you of this. If you get healed, you're still going to die again one day, all right? Think of poor Lazarus, okay? He was raised, to, he died. Jesus called him out of the tomb. He was raised to life again, lived a couple of good years, and then he died again. The guy died twice. The guy died twice. But physical healing is a foretaste of the kingdom. That's what it is. It, it, it is an opportunity for God to display his love, his mercy. It is a moment where God acts to build faith and trust in him. It's evidence of the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross for humanity, for those who are looking in. It could be a very powerful evangelistic tool. That's what we often see in, in the book of Acts. And then it says here, the prayer of faith will raise the person up. The prayer of faith will raise the person up. And this is an interesting one. And I'm not going to get super dogmatic here. Um, but what we do have here with this, this language of raised up is, again, the language of full recovery. The lame man it was raised up. Lazarus was raised up. Even Jesus was raised up after he was in the tomb three days. There is a language of full recovery there. But the prayer of faith, what are we talking about here? A few things just to look at in the passage. Number one. It's the faith of the elders in this passage when they're praying, not the faith of the sick person. And as I said earlier, we often put the blame, or we can put the blame, on the lack of faith in the person that is sick. And yet here it's the faith of the person praying. So if you're going to be tempted to tell someone it's their lack of faith that they're not healed, perhaps it's your lack of faith. Just consider that before you blame someone. Secondly, I want to say this. Faith in the New Testament, consistently in the Bible actually, is consistently a gift from God. Faith is a gift that we are given. It's something that God gives. Faith is not something that you can just muster up. It's not a feeling that you can just turn on. Faith is based on a word from God. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, grace through faith, is a gift. Now don't get me wrong, let me say this. We need faith in these times. We need faith that God can heal. Because if we doubt, we shouldn't expect anything in this matter. That's what James says in James 1. If we ask and we doubt for things, don't expect God to give you stuff. And God sovereignly sometimes doesn't heal. We know that. We've experienced that. But I think the prayer of faith is possibly in those times when God sovereignly knows he is going to heal someone and he wants to heal someone. And this is his moment. And he gives a gift of faith to the person praying. And as they're praying for healing, as we all should be praying anyway, they just have this gift of faith and they know. And as they pray, God answers that prayer. I think that is probably what's going on here. Either way, faith is involved in praying for healing. That's undeniable when you read the Gospels, when you read Acts. Faith can move mountains, Jesus says. So whatever we think of this, let's bank. God wants to heal. God can heal. 
And so let's pray for healing and let's always trust and worship God no matter what the circumstances, whether they're good, whether they're bad, whether we get healed, whether we don't get healed now. Because we will be healed then. And James carries on. And if this person has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So based on all of this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James has an addition here to this prayer. He says, and if the person has sinned, they'll be forgiven. I don't think James would say, and if, if this whole passage again was about spiritual sickness and, and sin. Sin is a clause here. It's a subsection within the big topic of physical healing. Because you see, sometimes, sometimes sickness can be caused by unrepentant, unconfessed sin. Not always. It wasn't the case in Job's life when we looked at that a few weeks ago. It wasn't the case in John 9 and the incident there. But sometimes sin and the, the, the hidden secrets have an effect on the body. There's just, there's just a, an organic manifestation of these things because we're integrated beings. And this is not even a, a Christian worldview. People who have hid things for decades of their life, sometimes it has really manifested in their bodies and they've been sick because they, 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 they sat on something. But also sometimes God in his sovereignty can use sickness to bring us to repentance. It's a tool that God can use. And as any loving father disciplines his kids, God does that. It's not pleasant, but he gets our attention. He alerts us to things. And this is huge because, um, you know, James says here that you know, part of his deliverance ministry in a sense here is, is confessing things to God, confessing things to one another, particularly if you've sinned against that person, because it's a way of God dealing with us spiritually getting to the root of whatever might be underneath everything because God is a God who cares about us holistically salvation is not something that just ends up with us as disembodied spirits it ends up with us with resurrected glorified bodies and a whole glorified cosmos the Jewish term shalom is complete wholeness and that's that's the God we have that's the God we serve so these things shouldn't surprise us really Last point, and then we're going to sing and pray. We pray as righteous people. We pray as righteous people. Verse 17 and 18, James continues. After this, he says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. Why is Elijah coming up here? Elijah was like the Superman action hero dude of the Jewish people. I don't know if that sounds wrong, but um, kind of is. If you were a Jewish kid and you had action figures, you probably would have had Elijah. He was the powerful guy. He was the supernatural guy. He called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. He was the guy healing and doing miracles. He was the guy that everyone was expecting to return when the Messiah was coming back. And he actually did, in a sense. Jesus and Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration together. Elijah was there. So I'm not surprised at all that James mentions him here in this whole topic of, you know, crazy stuff. Because among many other things, Elijah was the supernatural dude. That's who he was. But don't miss the even bigger point here. He was a man like us with a nature like ours. Elijah was just like you and just like me. 
He was a normal human being. There was nothing special about him, but he was righteous. He was righteous. He was in a right relationship with God. That's what that word means. And if you have trusted in Jesus, you are righteous. You are in a right relationship with God. Christ on the cross took your guilt to make you innocent. God is with you, not against you. God looks at you and sees you blameless because by faith you are hidden in Christ. And God sees Christ's righteousness as your righteousness. When we don't live up to that and we fall short of that status, which happens, through repentance we can renew our experience of right relationship with God. It's an active relationship. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful when it's working. Elijah's not a superhero. Elijah's like you and I in relationship with the living God who is active and powerful. And prayer is simply communing with our Father in heaven who is good, who is kind, in whom we trust whether things are good or whether things are bad. Okay? Two more quick quotes and we're done. Clement of Alexandria. I don't know if it's the same Clement as earlier. I need to look that up. Prayer is keeping company with God. Simple. We've done a lot of technical teaching tonight. Don't overcomplicate this. Prayer is keeping company with God. Harry Emerson Fosbeck, the last thing I'll say, the only way to escape stereotyped, lifeless, and futile prayers, yes, please, is to view prayer as a vital, sustaining friendship with a God who cares for us individually. God cares for us. God cares for us. And so all this stuff, that God is with us in the good times and the bad, that God is alive and active today, that we're righteous in faith. Do we believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe this stuff? That's the big question. Do you have faith, really, that it's true? Do you have faith that it's true? That's, that's what I want to leave us with. And Greg's going to come up, and we're going to respond um, in, a, in a time of worship. And also, um, we're going to make room to pray, to pray for people, for healing and a bunch of other things. But let me not get ahead of myself. I just want to throw out three invitations here. As we, as we come to this time. Number one, um, come and be prayed for for healing if you're sick. Come. I, I want to I urge you, just step out in faith. Come, we'll pray for you. Steph and I will anoint you, but also other people can anoint you, whatever. And, um, and if you're someone who has the gift of healing or you just like to pray for someone or God's just urging you, hey, go pray for people. Come join us. Come and, come and pray. We'll, 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 we'll do it over there. So come and be prayed for, number one. Number two, um, for the rest of us, in faith, Trusting that God is here and with us, whether we are in a good time or a bad time right now, pray and sing to God. That's like the most simple, um, obvious response to what, to what James said, right? Use these songs, use this worship time to praise God for who He is, whether you're in the doldrums or you're in the heights. Come and talk to God. Pray to Him while you're here. And lastly, if you've never trusted in Jesus in your life to make you right with God, take the plunge. Take the plunge. Trust in Jesus by faith. What do, you need to, what do you need to recognize? What, what, are, what are the like basics? Well, you don't need to have money. You don't need to have intelligence. You don't need to have the, the greatest wisdom in the world. You simply need to recognize the fact that God created you, but that you have gone your own way. You have believed a different story. You have walked away from him, that you are a sinner by nature and choice. 
and that you are distanced from God right now. But God sent Jesus Christ to die on your behalf to pay the debt that you owe so that by simply believing in what Christ did on your behalf, you can be counted righteous in God's eyes. You can be right with God. He can adopt you as your child. You can be declared not guilty. You can be guaranteed of a resurrection and shalom can be yours. And he will be your father. So that's the invitation for you. And if you've never done that in our time of worship now, come to God in faith and, and say, God, I trust in Jesus. And you're gonna start a whole new journey after that. But that's step one.